Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Today's guest is Arun Venugopal, who is an American journalist and, most importantly, a fellow Houstonian. Arun is a senior reporter in the Race and Justice Unit at WNYC. He has been covering news regarding race, immigration, gender, and identity in the United States for a very long time, and has reported in venues including NPR's Morning Edition and All Things Considered programs. He's also worked with platforms such as Slate, PBS NewsHour, The Guardian, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Salon, The New York Post, and The Associated Press, and I believe many, many more. And I could not think of a better time to talk to Arun and publish this episode than now. We talk about the model minority myth growing up as Asian Americans and our experiences. And we also do touch upon the recent news of the Buffalo mass shooting done by a self-proclaimed white supremacist and the idea of replacement theory. So I hope you guys enjoy this very important and very fascinating episode with Arun Manokopal. This episode is brought to you by Asa Collective Podcast Network. All right, listeners, I want to take a second to give you a peek behind the curtain of the podcast industry. Now, it's no surprise, it's a bit of a boys club. Only about 28% of charting podcasts are hosted by women, even though women audiences listen to podcasts 20% more than men. Women also control 85% of household purchasing power in the U.S., So the question is, why are our voices undervalued in the space? Well, one company that's working to solve this problem is Asa Collective. I'm a proud member of this platform that connects women plus podcast creators with advertisers to amplify and support underrepresented voices. Having a partner like Asa means that I'm in control of the advertisers you hear on this show while increasing my earning potential with other partners. If you'd like to support Asa's efforts and learn more about the company, they are running a crowdfunding campaign on Start Engine to become one of the first podcast networks owned by its listeners and members. That would be you and me. Visit startengine.com slash Asa. That's startengine.com backslash O-S-S-A to learn more. So, and your parents came in 69, my parents came in 69, so I feel like, you know, we we grew up in the same hood, same area. I want to know what your experience was like growing up in Houston, the Indian American experience. Were you happy to be Indian? Were you confused? Was it the ABCD bullshit, which I hate that terminology, I need to change it. What was your term? What was your experience like? Yeah, it's funny. I was just, I was just telling, I was just kind of scolding someone who I heard on some other podcast. And we were just chatting and I was like, listen, you got to stop using this whole ABCD term. It's kind of like, it's like, I feel like I'm like suddenly like thrust like 20, 25 years in the past. It's just 
And he's like, oh, I'm sorry if it offends you. I'm like, no, no, it's just kind of like, I don't know. I just reach for the, I was like, it's kind of like still calling black people color folk or something like that, you know? It's just like, we just don't do that anymore. It's just like so weird. I I actually also never have been confused. So I'm like, I just, I think it's just a dumb thing. Anyway. It's (laughs) dumb. It's like. But it went on for a while, right? And then you realize it was just—it was just part of this very kind of superficial discourse about, like, and you know, I remember when I was around the time I was applying to high, uh, college, it felt like everybody for those few years was writing the same essay, which is like, "Am I Indian or am I Western? Oh, let me let me figure this out for you here." And you know, I was like, "Is it really that all we had going on?" I mean, and I think re- reflecting on it, it feels like we just we were not really kind of like tussling with what really we had to be. And I say we in this very broad sense, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, I mean, we had a, I had a pretty good and supportive, um, you know, community and uh, everything that uh, I guess, you know, one would want to have in terms of just, um, you know, all the, aunties and uncles and, and family. Well, and we had some, a few relatives nearby. Most of my family, of course, is still back in India, or at least was that. Um, and and then and I think then there's the other part of it, which is like you're making sense of stuff which you are taking for granted for the rest of your life, which you're like, oh, I just never really thought much about that until now. And I think a lot of people are doing that these days. Stuff that, like I've heard my sister is doing that too questioning stuff that at the time just seemed kind of benign and you're like oh you know so I think in some ways it's some it's not as straightforward a question or it's not as straightforward an answer as I might have told you in the past like oh yeah it was all great people were nice and you know here I am um it's not like I have I I never it's not like I ever had any intent of going back you know and I figure there's a reason for that more than just, you know, here's where my job is. Or, and, I'm, you know, I was fine with, you know, my college experience. And then after that, I was just like, I left the country for several years. And so I, I think at some point I got restless. So then how was your experience at the new school? Did you love it? Grad school, you know, it was fine. It was good. I, I, I was kind of into the whole idea of like new school had this whole radical history, this whole university exile, like all these German scholars who were like who are just kind of like escaping nazi germany and so they had a home in new york and so it was like this really interesting kind of history that i kind of um just really appreciated and so yeah um even though i wasn't really especially political at that point i don't think i had you know it took me a long time before my politics was shaped to the extent it is now um but it was um you know, it had its charms and, and its benefits as a, as a as a graduate program. But at the same time, I was trying to figure out professionally where I was, you know, headed. It took a minute there, too. But at least you knew, you know, you, you studied media. You you graduated with media studies. So at least you had the, I, I, like the industry kind of down. True, true. I mean, I didn't go to, like, J school. Well, by some point, I was like, oh, I... I'm not even sure if this is what I'm doing or what I want to do. And also J school, at least Columbia was like the only option back then. It was just so crazy expensive. I was like, I just don't have the, I mean, you know, I don't know. I was just trying to 
figure it out. Yeah, totally. Well, w- quickly, Ern, I I do. We have a lot of parallels, my friend, because I after Enron, I ran away and I moved to India. Oh wow, where to? Moved to moved to Bombay for a year. Wow. I was a backup Bollywood dancer for pop stars. Nice. Um, I am beyond glad that there was no social media back then because holy God, I mean, I don't even know what I was doing. And then I worked at uh, Red FM radio station. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Uh, I did. I did audition for a to be a DJ when it was in Bangalore because it was right. Yeah, was all, it was trying to come up in the mid nineties. Yeah, all it was all coming up. Yeah, nineties, early two thousands. Second time I lived in India was with my husband. We got married, and uh, we moved there as expats. So I did Delhi for a year and a half. Not I, we, uh, and then Bangalore for a year and a half. So I had two very different ex- India experiences, but loved them both in a very different way. First time around, I was single, dating, trying to date actors, and trying to, I don't know what the hell I was doing. Oh, my God. All right. So, like I said, I heard about you through our mutual people, and then, um, obviously, your articles, because you are a journalist. So, you know, I started really thinking about the Indian American experience and this whole model minority myth because of the podcast, right? Just recently, started really reflecting on all that stuff. So, I'm wondering... What when did it start for you? When did you start really reflecting on your own experience and this whole the US basically made it so engineered it for us, our group of our community to work? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's such a gradual thing. Like you're constantly um trying to make sense of your place in the world. And I think you can go for years thinking like you know what your place in the world is, it's this. And um you know, when I think back to the benefits that our people had accrued, you know, I think back to like college and I had this roommate who kind of, you know, came from a sort of a redneck background in Texas. And uh, I remember him saying like, kind of whispering into my ear or something, or him saying something like, oh yeah, you know, we like you guys. Um, you know, we know that you're really hardworking. And then he kind of whispered into my ear, like, unlike those spicks, I was like, huh, that was a weird thing to say. Why would you do that? You know, it just kind of struck me as very odd and kind of menacing, you know, not to me, but just like generally. And so I think, you know, you hear as if you're Indian and you come from a particular, a particular Indian background, you can get a lot of that in this country and it can seem very benign, right? You can seem like, oh, what, how is anybody being hurt if we are being elevated a little? Like, it just seems like, you just take a compliment, right? I grew up really proud of the fact that we were a model minority. Like, just thinking, cool, like, yeah, why can't other people do this, right? Like, all, all in all honesty, until recently where I'm like, oh, shit. Anyway, so continue with what you're saying. I'm just yeah, no, definitely... I think it's a, it's a common enough thing. Like, you might even if you're sort of, like, vaguely, you know, self-aware... And you think like, no, no, of course, everybody deserves a chance and stuff like that. Um, you know, maybe that's the extent of, of your, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, engagement with the idea. Um, and I think like, you know, I'm a race reporter. I've been doing this for a long time. And as things really started kind of getting uh, more pronounced in terms of like Black Lives Matter and all that um, 
or even going back before that to like, you know, when Trayvon Martin was killed and all the, all these incidents, you know, and you're kind of like, wow, something just never go away. Like, right. There's still this crazy violent kind of, you know, the way in which black lives are just so, um, you know, put at risk and, you know, segregation and just mass incarceration, all this kind of stuff. And I think that uh, I just happened to at, at some point stumble on some of the texts, which made me realize like, um, there's more than sort of the simple idea that we're, we're told or presented with, which is that, oh, you know, we all came over and we were educated and more, you know, this and that. And so we just kind of flourished because our parents had gone to good colleges in India and whatnot. And then they came here and just, you know, made the most of these opportunities. And I realized that really like, um, it was a much kind of bigger sort of like engineering, if you will, of, um, of our, of our, you know, our situation in this country, you know, the, all the, all the different things that aligned and allowed for us to, to be able to move into certain neighborhoods and to be able to move into certain professional networks or go to the right colleges or be accepted and not be seen as, you know, a threat, but be seen as in some ways, you know, just the best of America, you know, we are like part of this new landscape and all these things, which all, again, just seem so kind of benign, not realizing that in some ways we were kind of like a veneer, um, you know, a facade for, for something else, you know, this, this country and that uh, it wasn't the case that we were some, like in just some ways, just the, the, the vanguard of this new awakening kind of, you know, whatever country that we were like, you know, this whole rainbow coalition of everybody of different backgrounds. Um, and I think that's become more and more evident to me when we've seen what everything we're seeing right now, which is like, you know, white people are flipping out. They're completely like losing their shit over what's going on in this country um, and trying to make sense of like this sort of like this crazy contradiction between on one hand, I live in Jackson Heights, Queens. You know, I live in like not just the heart of like what was once the first like little India in, you know, in North America, you know, in the sort of modern era, era but, you know, it's just this incredible array of different nationalities and languages and cultures. It's a fantastic place to be. How do you make sense of that reality, this amazingly diverse kind of a thing, which I think a lot of us still continue to think like, oh, this is an, this is a beautiful thing how do you reconcile that reality, which we think of as like the direction our country is going in with this other thing, which seems to be this, you know, even stronger pill pull backwards, right. Into whiteness, white panic. And so I think that's really what my, you know, my, where my interest lies is trying to reconcile all these, this really crazy and seemingly inexplicable sort of like paradox um, about the two sort of faces of this country and using our own experiences, you know, my family's experience, our community's experience to understand um, not just where we came from, but also like what the country got out of us and who, what, how, like who we served in a sense, how our stories served, you know, our white masters, if you will. Do you think our parents understand that? Have you talked to your parents about this? Do they, if they do understand it, do they agree with it? Because I can see my dad being like, no, no, we just worked hard and made it. Like, it's very basic. 
Yeah, I think it's an ongoing thing. Like, I think there are times where my parents, I mean, they were very excited when I had this piece in the Atlantic and they saw, um, you know, our, it was like this artist had taken different photos and, uh, and created this sort of artistic composite with, you know, all this illustration, stuff like that. And I, I got it framed afterwards and, and gave it to them. And I think in many ways they're very proud and, you know, it's, it's wonderful to, you know, to have your parents affirm, you know, what you do in that way. But also I think in some ways, um, there are times when they are like, Oh my God, what is going on with this country that we don't feel safe here anymore. And, uh, and so I think in some ways it helps clarify that. And I think that at the time it, it clearly resonated in a way that I was kind of caught off guard, like the amount, the number of people who were, were reading it and sharing it on WhatsApp and all that stuff. And, um, and some people I think who took issue with it as well, maybe for some of these reasons that they thought it, it was invalidating and that kind of stuff, which is fine. You know, that's part of the reason you, you write, right. Is, um, is to provoke people to think in new ways and, and to make you, because you're, you yourself are thinking in new ways. And so um, I think part of the challenge for people in our community who have, you know, been, who have seen the, you know, the benefits the most is that it, it implicates questions of, um, you know, core questions of identity, like caste and stuff like that, you know, because who were the people who had them, who had the access to opportunity um, going back to the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And for the most part now as well. So, I mean, that's one reason I do talk more and more to people who do come from different caste backgrounds to make sense of their experience here. Um, Because I think in some ways I'm very, I feel pretty naive about this stuff. I mean, it's, it's understandable. I don't think that we can necessarily fault ourselves and, you know, but, uh, it is on us to, to be a little more, um, literate about this kind of stuff. Right. It's not like it's easy to get the access to the information. You have to dig for it. You do because there, you know, the narrative has been driven, not just by certain people in our community for decades, it's been enabled by like the broader society, which is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, meritocracy, this is how it works. You know, you guys purely on merit, that's why you're here. And that's where you do well. And if you tell someone who did work their ass off, like, why are you making this about something else? It's because I worked really hard. You're like, yeah, but there are a lot of people who worked really hard in this country. Not everybody ends up the same way. And I think that's a very hard question to ask of ourselves is like, you know, I mean, it doesn't have to be another Daisy. It can be another a person of a different background where you realize like, wow, this person's life is, is fundamentally different. And um, I think as we're trying to make sense of this crazy country, you have to be able to like dig a little deeper and you can't rely on these mythologies that we've, that are pretty convenient. You also wrote about the white working class Americans who voted for Trump kind of to understand what their motives were. And it feels like going back to what you said, was it potentially just straight out of fear? So I think like with any, any major sort of, um, you know, societal shift, you, it's always about like, what is the confluence of factors that enabled this, you know, crazy out of nowhere um, candidate to win, you know, 
you know, office in the world's most powerful country. And so in 2016, our newsroom decided, like, let's do a deep dive into um, our own backyard, like the suburbs of New York City, because we saw that um, candidate Trump was had done pretty well in the primaries, the New York primary. And you think, oh, it's New York. You know, we're not we're not like backward. But we focused on Long Island and specifically on Suffolk County, which is a little further out in Long Island. And um, I was asked to sort of, there were two reporters. One was like um, a reporter from the nation and she was going to focus on immigrants and what it's like to be an immigrant, specifically like Latino immigrants in Long Island and their experience. And I was asked to focus on white suburbanites. And so for me, it was really a great experience because um, it was such an education, not just in in understanding the true nature of the suburbs, you know, why had the suburbs, which of us had grown up in, uh, what is the history there that, you know, we could bring to bear um, and what was changing. And so I guess a few of the things that are changing is that like the suburbs that these people moved to in the fifties and the sixties, they kind of like all fled the city, right? They fled the diverse city. They fled black neighbors, people that they thought was like, Oh no, white, this is white flight. Right. So white flight meant that a lot of people were leaving, uh, neighborhoods that were becoming, um, you know, blacker or having uh, people of other backgrounds, say Puerto Ricans were coming to city, black people were moving up from the South, uh, the great migration. And so the suburbs were a way for a lot of white people, like millions, tens of millions of people to say like, um, yeah, the city is a little too crowded, you know, it's just too hectic. I just want something a little quieter and to use all of these kinds of euphemisms for essentially wanting to leave the diverse um, city behind. Um, so it's kind of like, as I say, it's it sort of, it was this sort of, this utopian concept really. And um, and so the that utopian idea had kind of run its course by the, by the you know, 2016, 2000, and well before that, the people who moved there, they didn't really know their neighbors anymore. Their property taxes were really high. Uh, they had all these immigrants moving into their, if not their specific community, then close enough that it felt scary to them, right? And then also this other thing, which I was kind of like, for me, very new to kind of like make sense of was just the opioid scandal, um, which was really hitting white communities more than anybody else. Um, and so I think in some ways that was the reality for a lot of people in these communities you had. Um, you know, the kids were not getting jobs. They weren't. If you were like a white working class person in 1950 or 60, you maybe had access to all kinds of work that was like good paying union jobs, you know, and you might still be able to go to like, a, you know, uniformed kind of a firefighting or, a, you know, police department jobs, which still are a lot of white communities kind of like get, even if, you know, you don't have to necessarily have like advanced education to get a pretty decent paying job and all these benefits and stuff like that and the respect of your community. Um, but for the most part, a lot of people were having trouble getting their kids, you know, their kids weren't getting good jobs, you know, they were staying at home that or they were struggling with drug abuse. They're dying. I mean, people whose kids were dying. Um, and so I think this is like a Hail Mary pass. Donald Trump was like, he's the only person who kind of like tells it like it is. Right. And um, that's why, you know, a lot of people in the outer suburbs, uh, 
of New York City and many other places place their faith in this guy. And they thought, oh, Obama, you know, they, there's so much misinformation and propaganda from the right. So it was it was my sort of like, you know, way of understanding these things about, you know, what's happening right now. So the model minority myth, which is obviously you've researched it, is that something like in, and we know that this myth basically perpetuates racism towards other non-white groups and then towards immigrants as well. But is it changing now? Is it evolving, this whole myth? Is this just something that kind of used to be an easy thing to explain, but now people are understanding it more? Or is it still just people like you that are actually researching it, that are trying to get this out there? And if it is evolving, is that just because it's supposed to evolve? I, I look at London, a place like London, where there's third, fourth generation, fifth generation Indians, I don't even know. Um, and it feels like the model minority myth is, probably does not exist there. Is that is what's going to happen here too? I, 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 sh- I wish I could do a better sort of analysis of like a compare and contrast with the UK. But definitely one thing we know is that, you know, with, with the UK, you do have when it comes to South Asians, at least you have more of a working class sort of South Asian presence there that came earlier on. And so the narrative of um, this highly sort of rarefied Indian community, which, um, you know, the one that arrived here in the post 65 immigration wave, you know, and had these really high levels of education. um, It is different. And I mean, what I can tell you here is, that, I mean, like, and there's this book called The Other 1%. It's a, by these three scholars. And they, I remember this one line where they say, like, early on, it wasn't even like we were the, the 1%. We were like the half percent. I mean, uh, I don't think we really, in some weird ways, fully appreciate just how, how special and how completely, like, uh, um, elite we are and were. I mean, I think some people say like, oh, I think we know all too well because that's all we do all the time is talk about how, you know, look at our lavish everything, you know, all of our super, super fancy tech moguls, you know, it's like every week it feels like another like CEO or whatever, CFO or the head of some, you know, big enterprise or appointee or whatever it is. We There's like, it's just never ending. Um. But I think in that sense, I think like our story is so, is so unusual, you know, uh, that I think we're still trying to get our, you know, wrap our, our heads around, um, uh, around that. And, and I think for that to, to, to further happen, it does, one of the most interesting aspects of this, I think, is that you have this very small but emerging sort of like, non-upper caste community of people in the diaspora who are sort of voicing their experiences and people who are doing research about this and trying to understand our status through this land. So does the model minority myth still exist? Yeah, I think it does. But I would also argue that uh, what we're seeing now in terms of like the violence and the erosion of democracy and the direct threat to our sense of safety and whatnot is suggests that this 
this it's running its course or it's run its course. I mean, certainly our East Asian, you know, communities um, who are like on a daily basis, just, you know, living in fear, um, you know, you can, I think it was like some quote I saw somewhere, which is like our, our lab coats or our white coats will not save us. Right. Um, no matter how highly qualified you are, you can be a fourth or fifth generation Asian American. Right. I mean, that's much more likely than if you are, than to be a fourth or fifth generation Indian American. Right. There's not too many of us who could say that, but I think it doesn't matter how long you've been here. Like your, your Americanness is sort of like qualified. There's like an asterisk and you can forget that for a long time until you stop forgetting. You're reminded that like people who look like you or have names like you or, you know, you know, pray like you or your family does. Uh, there is still this, you know, this, these crosshairs that occasionally appear um, suggesting there is a vulnerability. You're not completely protected that your sense of like otherness, you know, remains intact. And so I think that, you know, it really depends. There's a lot of people who, you know, you just keep on living your best basic life. Right. And sometimes that's fine. And other times it's, it's like a form of denial. Right. I mean, I'm not like one who's like, you know, completely living this constantly virtuous kind of thing. I too, like other people like to occasionally, you know, enjoy, you know, life. <laughs> and that, like this, the, the fruits of our parents' labor, right? Yeah. And just like everything goes wrong. You live in New York and these things happen. But I, I, but I do think like, it's, I mean, it's like, we all have to like, just get by, right? Like, we, and, and the question is how you can do that, but also appreciate, um, I think we're trying to make sense. What does it mean to like pull your head out of, out of the hole? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest part is this idea of a meritocracy, you know, and thinking that like the le- the playing field is level and that, you know, it just matters on how much you put in. That's how much you'll get out. You know, it's a very simple idea, right? It's like probably all societies have some version of that. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like, you know, Indian Americans, South Asian Americans haven't really thought about any of a- any of this because they haven't had to up until the past five years, you know, until, uh, Trumpism came into our world and it was us against them. It felt like us against them in a way where we were like, oh, wait, our other, you know, non-white communities, that, that that's our people too. Like, it's not just us. We're not better than them. Or I think a lot of us associated being Indian with being part of the white community. And I think what makes this a little complicated is kind of like, wait a minute, but my parents and that auntie and that uncle and all these other people in our community, their favorite thing is when we marry within our own community and we hang out and celebrate all these things. So I think it it gets a little complicated when we talk about like, you know, gravitating towards whiteness is like, what does that mean when, you know, we have this very high level of what's called endogamy, right? It's marrying within the community. It's like pretty high level of that higher than almost any other ethnic group to to which I'm aware, certainly within Asian communities. And so I think like there are all these things that you can easily buy into if you're like a young person, you're like, well, this is, my parents want this. It also makes me happy, right? Look, I found this person who looks, you know, we all come from the same background and stuff like that. What could be better than that? And so I think in terms of like how that reproduces a certain particular story, And then making sense of this other thing that you said, which a lot of people say, which is like, what does it mean to be, I don't know, to be white adjacent, right? Like, 
Yeah, and I think that's been our story. A lot of a lot of our stories for a long time up until I would even say till recently. So it's good. It's good to like start understanding these things. It's just a lot of lot to peel back. I think like, you know, in terms of like what does solidarity mean? What does that look like? What does racial solidarity mean? Yeah, cuz I think at the end of the day our parents didn't have um the space the time, the headspace to think about that kind of stuff because they were here to survive and make it. It's going to be up to us and our kids now and future generations to think about this kind of stuff. I don't think my parents could have even thought about this. Yeah. I mean, I think like the people who are kind of shaping our idea, uh, I mean, are the, the ideas that were shaping who we were as a community, I think. Um, what was sort of prioritized is sort of like, you know, spending time with with each other, forming our associations and having our functions and in some ways reproducing like, you know, India as much as we could here. Right. Uh, that was what was thought of as like we're being authentic. Right. And I think this is a very different idea. It's like, how do you basically I mean, that too, you're doing that in the suburbs, which are very particular space. Right. You're not like necessarily living um, in fact, you're leaving, if you're moving anyway, you're leaving communities which are more like racially diverse and you're going to um, communities um, which are less racially diverse, right? Like these kind of like nice suburbs or whatever. And so it, it kind of provokes these really, it prompts these really difficult questions about like, what does it mean to be part of a more like, like racially egalitarian society like you know like where do you even start you know you know what does it mean this phrase showing up for black lives aside from going to a march once or twice in a year or something like that you know you know and how do those building blocks build to something that is going to withstand this crazy white nonsense that we're having to live with you know where a guy can like walk into a supermarket in buffalo in a black community and just like, you know, mow down all these people and stuff like that because he's influenced by this idea called, you know, white replacement theory, you know, like there are all these crazy ideas that we didn't hear before that now we have to live with on a daily basis. WNYC. So you are a senior reporter in the race and justice unit. And I know you hosted the station's Micropolis series. I believe that's over. Is it done now? Is it yeah, for the most part. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think okay. so. <laughs> All right. Which is, I mean, so it examines issues of race, gender, identity, um, and it was being held at the green space, which is a space I went to check out. Thought it was lovely, and it was focused on New York City. You know, the New York City community. So, I mean, you you had so many amazing topics. You talked about like Trumpist Islamophobia, Christmas festivities among non Christians. I mean, amazing stuff. And this is all in person. These are panels and experiences. So like takeaways, how was that experience? What was your maybe favorite experience or or panel or discussion during that time? And did you feel the impact of it? You know, I think it's like, I was very lucky to have these, um, these events happen. It had happened sort of in conjunction with, and after I've been doing this on-air series called Micropolis for a few years, these broadcasts, you know, I would like kind of like really deeply analyze a certain aspect of race or representation or identity. And some of that was just like, you know, very deep in the weeds of like 
all that's going on. And first, in Obama's America and then in Trump's America, I guess. Um, and then we started doing these events live and some of them were, you know, serious conversations and some of them were just like really just fun and pleasurable. One that comes to mind from several years ago, I did this video once, which I guess kind of struck a nerve or whatever, where I was kind of like talking about the, um, as someone who grew up eating with, you know, my hand and that sort of like, you know, the, the stigma of that. Exactly. All that, like in terms of like, always doing it quietly and then realizing, Oh, maybe this is, maybe we're being silly um, to be so like, you know, self-conscious about it. And so we had this actual physical event where, um, and I was joined by like mother Joffrey and Heems. Um, and it was a really lovely event. I mean, she's such an, she's such a, an amazing person. And she's, and so to have her, you know, talking about this thing that we do and how we connect with our food, but also with each other and, um, and over doing this, you know, on a weeknight in Manhattan was kind of just this really kind of, um, felt very sort of like, uh, kind of this blessed, uh, evening, um, when we got to do that. And, you know, you're taking pleasure while also making sense of these things that for many years, I think we felt, a little self-conscious, not a little, very self-conscious about, you know, which is core aspect of our identity. So that's the one I heard about. So when I went to the green space, we talked about that specific experience and how she was just blown away by it. So I'm glad that you mentioned it. Nice. I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. I am going to ask you some kind of fun personal questions. Tell me about a time you've experienced heartbreak. <laughs> by the way this could this could be professional or personal it doesn't matter this is uh it's so funny when you're uh when you have questions like this which you've kind of heard before but never been asked yourself or maybe um like which direction you take it in mm-hmm. but what's the first thing that comes to your mind like i think i <laughs> i think making sense of like i was talking to my mother-in-law who's with us for a few months from india and we were talking about our dog i have this dog named momo like the dumpling and then i and then she was we started talking about a childhood dog and, you know, you realize, my God, like when you lose your childhood pet, it's something that stays with you forever. Like uh, we moved with her. We moved when I was 10, we moved to India with her and she was there and she went through so much crap, like this family pet that we adored so much. And um, I mean, like she was, when we left her for a few weeks to come to America you know, she was starved. Like the person who was supposed to be feeding her, like was like taking all her food away. So she was eating and stuff like that. She ran away looking for us, ran through those slums of Madras to try to find us and stuff like that. Um, and then we moved back with her. And uh, I remember have, having just gone to college and I was starting college, you know, you've got this whole new life and stuff like that. And uh, my mom told me like, yeah, right after you left, you know, she wasn't getting up. She had some kind of problem. A few days later, they had to put her to sleep. And like, she was telling me how, like, when she took her to the vet to kind of give her to the vet, how she kind of like, she kind of like lift her hand up almost like a handshake to my mom. And I'm going to think like, oh my God, like these dogs of ours, right? So is it heartbreak? It's not really heartbreak, but you like think like, my God. That's like, heartbreak. That is right. That's a big heartbreak. There you go. So I answered your question. Oh, whatever comes you know what you know you know this you've interviewed you've done this millions of times i think it's whatever you first think of it's it's, it's in the front of your heart you know so i mean and i think definitely like, you, know, you you think like these these creatures these animals who are just like 
they bring so much happiness to your life. And then think about like the pandemic and like, my God, it's like, like if we didn't have our pet or if so many people got their pets around us, didn't have theirs, like you'd be completely losing your mind. Totally. God, I'm thinking about getting a dog, by the way. So I'm, I'm, I'm on the verge of it. I'm just worried about that part of it. Yes. Texan dog. Texas dog. Yes. You are a New Yorker. Uh, what is your perfect New York City day and night? Days like this where it's like the sun is coming out and you've kind of like weathered the 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 winter and the breeze is, you know, it is nice and gentle. You kind of think like, oh, it'd be nice just to get, go to the park, go to Central Park and sit around with friends. And, and, you know, I love like the buildings on Central Park South and West and all that kind of ring the park. And, you know, there have been times where we'd be like, we have like a delayed holy celebration. It's like two months later because it's like too cold to celebrate holy and like whatever it is. We just did it yesterday, by the way. So don't feel delayed. There you go. Just yesterday. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we actually don't go to Central Park as often as I'd like to, but, you know, doing something like that. And then, I don't know, do you go to Flushing or to some like underground izakaya for a meal? And I still occasionally just like, you know, when getting together, I saw a friend the other day um, who was visiting from Mumbai and I was like, you know, it's nice when you kind of rediscover the sparkle of the city and it's late, you know, you're having drinks and just wandering the city aimlessly, no idea where you're going to go next. And I think, uh, in New York's had some tough years. There are days where I think like, what's happening here? But I still, um, I still, I still do love this place. And so for me, you know, maybe in what else do I squeeze in there? Do I squeeze in like, uh, a play or something like that. I'm trying to like get a little better by going and seeing theater and just kind of like trying to, yeah. you know, rediscover that too. Um, so a busy day. I love it. I love that answer. I think I would say the same thing. Oh, I also like to show off people on the, the cable car, the Roosevelt Diana cable car. I love people taking See? outsiders on that. I'm actually going to go see the Statue of Liberty for the first time in a couple of weeks. Oh, nice. Like, it's oh, just, yeah. uh, it's been here. I'm like, I need to go do that. So yeah, before um, you leave town kids. and never see. Yeah. Again. I just, I, I'm getting really emotional about leaving. Um, future projects, anything you can talk about that you're doing this year? Anything I can talk about. That's a tough one. I am working on a book project, but I can't really talk much about it. At this okay, point. cool. Um, but yeah, I got, I got an agent, all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of Look fun. Look at you. You're fancy. Yeah. Oh, fancy. <laughs> Not too fancy that's for your awesome. better. No, yeah. no fancy bancy, Jello. Um, <laughs> fancy shancy. Yeah. I have fancy shancy. Uh, ultimate collaboration. <laughs> I don't know. It'd be kind of cool to like uh, collaborate with like an animator. What's his name? Who's the uh, Who's the Pixar guy? Um, oh Jesus, I have no idea. Not talking but about I love it. Sanjay Patel, you know. Ah, okay. God, he's such an incredible talent. But I think like I think like working like as somebody who's like not an artist can't sing, uh, you know, <laughs> any of those kinds of like true artistic skills. But I always think like, God, what people do, like artists do, like creating something from nothing. It's just like, it's just magical, right? And so I think like, I still like have those kinds of like dreams. If not being able to do that myself, then at least being able to be in close proximity to people who are like, I mean, I like when I see like an actor on stage, I'm like, God, how does this person do that? This is like, this complete magic. It's like alchemy, right? It's magic. And I feel like it's magic. Yeah, it is. 
I love it. You know what? You're throwing it out there. Let's be hokey and say it's out in the universe now. You never know. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. What would you like to be known for at the end of your career? You know, I feel like journalists were supposed to um, be known for our, like dispassion and our objectivity and stuff like that. And I kind of feel like um, I think what matters more is just is humanity. I kind of feel like that is part of the job of a journalist and of a writer and of, a, of any kind of artist, I think, is, you know, anyone who's living in a, in a multiracial democracy is kind of helping protect and preserve this very precious thing, which is just so, you know, vulnerable and, and tender, right? Like, and, and part of the way you do that is by humanizing those who are otherwise can be demonized, you know? And I, so I think for me, like, I think that's the word that, you know, I think of right now is like, you know, that humanity is such, such a precious thing, you know, as we see in a, in a, in a, in a world where so many lives get lost and there's so much violence and, and, uh, and othering is how do you basically do your tiny little part to preserve whatever humanity, you know, we all have. Well, that's, that's also a sign of, I believe, a good storyteller. Storytelling in, in the most positive way you can think about that word. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I love that. All right. The last and most important question of the interview. You ready for this? And you have to answer it. Give me your best uncle joke. Oh my God. <laughs> this is a brilliant uncle joke. I warned you in our emails. And I was yeah, like, yeah, but you didn't say that you will be expected to tell one. Well, that's all. That's a I, just, I just got the vibe from the emails that you were pretty good at this. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to let him think about it and he's going to have to throw one at me. I can't like email you afterwards. Say I just thought of one. You could. I can. What I could do is I could like I can let's like do a, a a voice memo and send it to you. And so they are in completely blanked out. You just it was deer in the headlines. Done. But then done. Do that. I expect the voice mem- memo in the next forty eight hours. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I've had these now and then. <laughs> and I can remember. probably remember like the groans and the the upset stomach look on yes. my. Yes. Faces I want all of it. I, I want to feel sick afterwards. I want to be just so like, <laughs> I want to roll my eyes. I want all the emotions after this. At this age, every joke I make is like a dad slash uncle joke. And I'm like, come on, really? But apparently it is. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, the bird. No, same here. That's the bird. Same. I, I, you know what? I love being an auntie. I'm like, let's go. You want to go? I'm old. You can just do so much more. It's amazing. You guys, that interview was actually 90 minutes long. I had so many questions for him. He is doing some fantastic work and has so much great insight. Please follow Arun on Twitter at ArunNYC. That's A-R-U-N-N-Y-C. Or check him out at WNYC.org. As always, you can follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast. Check out the newsletter, guys. It is amitucker.com substack.com it's free and it's funny 
Thank you guys for listening. I'll see you next week. This is Tuckered Out. <laughs>